Well, I want to have you turn with me to 3 John, and then we'll be in Numbers 31 and 32, but first in 3 John. 3 John is just a couple of hundred words, so if it's hard for you to find, that's okay. It's near the very end of your Bible, third to last book of the Bible. The book of 3 John highlights a man that some have called the pastor's nightmare or the church's nightmare. His name was Diotrephes. And Diotrephes was a man whose conscience had long ago stopped working. He wasn't aware of spiritual things. He wasn't sensitive. Certainly he had no self-awareness. And the Apostle John, writing here to an unspecified local church body, he writes in this short, short note that he has much more to write to the church But he doesn't trust that it'll be disseminated to the church because Diotrephes may get his hands on it. And so he doesn't write. And I always have wondered, verse 13, I had much to write to you. Oh, what would have John written had it not been for Diotrephes? Of course, in the sovereignty of God, this is exactly what we have. What was Diotrephes like? He was a leader, probably a lay elder in this unnamed local church. 3 John, verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So what is he like? Let me tell you what he's like. First of all, he's power hungry. He's power hungry. He likes to put himself first. He didn't acknowledge apostolic authority. He wanted to be in charge. That was important to him. That was his idol. Not only was he power hungry, he was a slanderer. Verse 10, he's talking wicked nonsense against us. This is very spiritually dangerous because when a Christian's ears become closed to the ones who are imparting the word of God to them through the preached word, They become jaded and angry and self-centered. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 commands you to love and respect and honor your leaders. It's not for our sake, it's for your sake. Because the minute you stop doing that, then you cannot hear the word of God anymore. And you become jaded. And so he was doing this on purpose. He was power hungry, he was a slanderer. What else was he? He was jealous. He was jealous of gifted preachers. He says in verse 10, he refuses to welcome the brothers. This is speaking of traveling preachers, traveling missionaries in an era in which not every local church had some good trained men yet. Verses 7 and 8, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. These were traveling preachers and diatrophies wanted nothing to do with them. He's power hungry. He's a slanderer. He's jealous. And finally, he was abusive. He was abusive. He stood against those who wanted to hear the word of God. Imagine that irony, an elder trying to stop the preached word in the church. He also stops those who want to and wants to and puts them out of the church. This was a unilateral act of church discipline based on wanting to keep control, not based on confronting observable sin. This was a powerful man in the church who could decide unilaterally that somebody would leave. What was missing from Diotrephes? Well, he seemed to have no conviction of sin. 
no sense of guilt for his completely self-focused stand. And John was coming to have a showdown. He was going to publicly rebuke Diotrephes. Now, John is writing to another church leader, Gaius, who in verse 5 is commended by John for all your efforts for these brothers. He's totally different. And I can imagine Gaius' joy and excitement when John said, I'm coming to deal with Diotrephes. He's like, oh yeah, finally, that's good. Diotrephes clearly held emotional power in the church if he was able to put people out of the church unilaterally, apparently on a regular basis. Diotrephes was a rogue church member, a rogue leader. His conscience and his conviction had ceased to work for him, had ceased to function for him and for the benefit of others. How do we avoid that? How do you avoid a conscience that becomes seared? How do you avoid being unable to be convicted in your heart? Well, that's what we want to look at tonight in Numbers 31. So I want to have you turn with me back to Numbers 31 as we're working our way through the Pentateuch. And in the book of Numbers, you recall, we are looking at the topic of spiritual maturity. Israel is about to enter Canaan at God's command. And Moses has some unfinished business to clean up. And in Numbers 31 and 32, we get some good lessons about conviction. Now, let me define Christian conviction for you, first of all. What is Christian conviction? This is my definition, but I think I can support it from Scripture. Christian conviction is the dawning realization that you are disobeying God. That's what it is. It's the dawning realization that you are disobeying God. James 2, 8 and 9 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is the same idea. This word convicted, it means exposed. It means brought to light. It can even mean put to shame. The dawning realization that you are disobeying God. Now, conviction of this sort is internal. It is very real. It's not merely an outward appearance of making amends. There's a genuine heart change when you have two little bitty kids that are mad at each other and one threw a rock at the other one and you make them stand together and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's useless. That's not conviction. That's, that's a Pharisee saying, I'm sorry, who doesn't mean it. Theoretically, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more sensitive and easily convicted you should be and the shorter your response time to conviction ought to be. But conviction... While it has a difficult side, it has a sweet and a wonderful side as well. It's those times of conviction when we're humble, when we're most like God, when we're most prone to Christ-likeness. Now, these two chapters here contain two separate events in which, in many ways, are very parallel. And from them, we can derive two types of conviction. Conviction which grows us spiritually into more and more uh, Christ-like believers in the Lord Jesus. Two types of conviction. I'll give them both to you up front. The first we'll call conviction toward holiness. Conviction toward holiness. And the second we'll call conviction toward selflessness. Conviction toward selflessness. So conviction toward holiness and conviction toward selflessness. First, let's look at conviction toward holiness in chapter 31. Now, there's an important work to be done. There's unfinished business going all the way back to the recent event in which the false prophet Balaam had conspired with Balak, the king of the Moabites, to seduce Israel into idolatry. 
And you recall, this is in Numbers 25, that Balaam and Balak did this through the offering up of the women of Moab and of Midian to Israel's men, destroying whole families. And, and it even came to the point that they had set up a tent for ritual acts of sexual immorality to be performed right outside the entrance to the tabernacle of God. Horribly blasphemous. And you recall that God had begun killing the men of Israel for their sin. But when an Israelite chieftain named Zimri brought Kozbi, the Midianite princess, to this tent, the spear of God came through the hand of Phineas. Phineas, the priest, he came with the spear and he atoned for the sins of the people by spearing to death Zimri and Kozbi and the plague stopped. And yes, Israel was responsible for her own sin. But God never likes it when a nation comes against his people in any way. And concerning in particular the Midianites, God had issued a decree of judgment. Numbers 25, beginning in verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down. For they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. And thus God decreed judgment and destruction on Midian. Now, this was not just to be that Israel was going to go give Midian a little spanking and teach them a lesson. That wasn't the point at all. It was to be that Israel was to be the means by which Midian would cease to exist. They would be committed to utter destruction as a sacrifice to the Lord. I want you to keep that in mind. That's going to become important later. That was Israel's job, to utterly destroy Midian. And so to fulfill this previous decree of judgment, God told Moses he had one more task before his time on this earth and his time with Israel were finished. Numbers 31, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read the first 12 verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones and took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities in the places where they lived, and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. This was a holy war. It was a holy war as indicated by the sending of Phineas the priest and the holy things of the tabernacle. And just as a side note here, someone might ask, what's the difference between this sort of holy war and, and Islamic jihad, which we, we're, we're, we abhor? Shouldn't we be disgusted by any so-called holy war at all? Well, there's two differences. 
very basic ones. First of all, Allah doesn't exist, and therefore Islam is a complete ruse. It's a deception, so that's irrelevant. But secondly, God alone is holy, 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 and so everything he does is holy. To give you grace is holy. To save the church of Jesus Christ is holy. And yes, to pour his wrath on unbelievers is holy. Israel is simply the means by which he would do this. He's holy. He's righteous. He's unique. He alone can wage holy war. Now Phineas had been the one who stood up for holiness and righteousness in his courage and unflinchingly killing Zimri and Cosby and thereby stopping the plague of God. So Phineas would be a rallying point. He would be an inspiration to those 12,000 troops going against the Midianites. And Israel won a great victory that day. They killed the kings of the Midianite confederation. They killed every soldier. They killed Balaam. And they brought back all the women and children of Midian and a fortune in livestock and property. The men of Israel would return now to the camp of Israel certainly expecting to be congratulated and commended by Moses. Verse 13, Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. In the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. It was the Midianite women who had caused 24,000 men of Israel to die because of their sexual immorality with these same women. They were the spiritual enemy. They were the means of apostasy. They were the ones who had seduced Israel to covenant treachery against their God. And now, in this text, you and I are confronted. We're confronted directly with the holiness, the righteousness, the other purity of God. And now we have to look in the mirror and we have to ask ourselves, do I believe, Psalm 24, verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein? Do I believe, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens He does all that he pleases. Do I believe? Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Do I believe in the total sovereignty of God and his right to mysteriously do things I cannot possibly understand? Do I believe this? Let's find out. Verse 17. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who is known man by lying with him. God commanded the execution of every woman who had been part of seducing Israel and any married woman at all from Midian. They had been physically and spiritually connected to the men of Midian. So they are filthy, spiritually speaking. And God commanded the execution of all the boys, the little ones. And now we're confronted with the temptation to think that we may be more righteous than God. Now, we could spend some time trying to explain this. Trying to get God out of what we perceive as some sort of difficulty. We could explain that even little boys can be so corrupted that they incur the wrath of God. 
We could explain that perhaps God will be merciful in eternity to these little boys, and that's certainly his prerogative to do. Or we could explain that God elects some to salvation according to Scripture, and perhaps none of these were elect anyway, and they were going to grow up to simply be wicked like their fathers. But this text offers no explanation, and it doesn't even offer a reason that there's no explanation. Why is that? Because holy and pure and perfect and righteous and blameless and upright and virtuous and good and sinless God is not obligated to explain anything to you or to me, and that does not make him less holy. In fact, instead of being self-righteously disgusted, which is an act of idolatry, by the way, because now we've placed ourselves in the position of judging God We should be devastated at the terrible consequences of sin. We should be struck down in our pride at the white hot holiness of Almighty God. But the Bible is the Word of God, and the Word of God reveals that in His unsearchable wisdom, sometimes God chooses to give up on whole groups of people. That's His choice. That's His right. That's His prerogative. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. It is an offense of the very highest order against God to condemn his actions. And in fact, to condemn the actions of God is the act of an unbeliever. And it shows your faith to be false. It's this sort of pride and self-righteousness which leads to hermeneutical gymnastics in which people try to reinterpret the Bible as being the story of a really mean God in the Old Testament who reformed and softened to be the God like Jesus in the New Testament. That's heresy. Ignoring the fact, of course, that the New Testament says that when Jesus returns, he's going to slaughter more people than probably in all of history prior to that. But not only is it an offense to condemn God, it is in many ways pointless to defend God. Does God require Steve Swartz's explanation? Does God require the preachers of the world to say, oh, this isn't really what it seems. Must I explain what God really meant by this? Must we look for human rationale or a surprise answer? Who are we to try to justify God? We don't have that right. And the choice is very clear. Do I bow to the infinite power and might and wisdom and sovereignty of a God whom I can never possibly fully grasp? Or will I only bow to a God that fits into a mold that I make? Which, of course, is idolatry. If you only bow and submit to a God with whom you're comfortable, now you've created a God in your mind who does not exist. The God will not be divided. He will not be categorized. The same God who sent his precious son into the world to die a substitutionary death on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe on Christ. He is the same God who would not receive the self-righteousness of those who would come against him. He is the same God who would make all who will not come to Christ pay for their own sins. And not just by a quick death by sword, not by some sort of penance, but by an eternity of suffering, the consequences of eternal treachery, eternal unrighteousness against the holy God. That is the God to whom we must bow. We don't get to remake him in our image. And your opinion of God, could I say this? Your opinion of God is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. You and I cannot possibly fathom the significance of the words shouted by the angels in God's presence day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
We can't grasp that in a million years. And so when God says, kill the little ones, we bow to his wisdom and we shudder in fear should we ever be on the wrong side of that God. And yet he is the same God who sent Christ to save us. But God's concern for holiness and purity now extends very practically to the men of Israel. The young virgins of Midian, verse 18, would be spared and marry the men of Israel and would help replenish the population killed by God in the plague of Numbers 25. In this, God was very merciful. And these young Midianite girls would no longer be Midianites. They would be Israelites. And they would be inculcated into the people of God. How kind, how merciful. But now, since his people have killed and blood is on their hands, yes, it is a holy war, he still demands that all they have touched be purified. Look with me at chapter 31, verse 19. Encamp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair and every article of wood. Verses 21 through 24, all the gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, and lead, all these metals taken in battle will be put through a fire to purify it and along with everything else shall be washed carefully in water. God's making a very clear point here. All that my people touch must be holy. Everything must be pure. And then the rest of the chapter explains the percentages of all the plunder that should go to the Lord in thankfulness, percentages of the animals and the plunder. And we see a summary here at the very end of the chapter, verse 54. And Moses and Eleazar the priest received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. Now, how did Israel respond to the rebuke of Moses in this instance? Did they demonstrate conviction? Did they demonstrate conviction toward holiness? Look at these key phrases. Chapter 31, verse 31. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 31, verse 41. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for the Lord to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 31, verse 47. From the people of Israel's half, Moses took one of every 50, both of persons and of beasts, and gave them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. The people were obeying, and they were doing so in silence. There isn't in this entire 54-verse chapter a single recorded peep of protest. Not one. They do all that was commanded this time. By the way, the next holy war to be fought on earth will be led by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You don't have to worry whether you'll have to make that choice. His chosen nation of Israel as being made up of believers in Christ, that doesn't exist today as it will in the future. And so God is not using Israel as a nation to perform his retributive justice at all. Today, the war we fight, Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood. Our war today, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, is against the evil one, against our own flesh, against the world system of darkness. And part of fighting this war is to be in on the capture of God's enemies. How do we capture God's enemies? We capture them through the gospel of Christ. And they turn from enemies to worshipers. 
They become citizens of heaven through the forgiveness of sins. So our holy war is fought on our knees. It's fought in prayer. It's fought in gospel faithfulness. But for you and me, from this chapter, we have a very simple question. Do you sense the conviction toward holiness? Do you sense a conviction toward holiness? Israel did less than God required and was rebuked strongly and had to go back and make it right. Is holiness, separateness, is that a pursuit that you think on, that you consider? The Christian life could be very accurately described as the pursuit of holiness. Peter repeated the Old Testament admonition in 1 Peter 1.15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There's a concept we don't talk about as much as, as we used to, but the Puritans used to use a word. They wrote extensively on what they called the mortification of sin, mortifying of the flesh. This just means to kill the flesh, killing of sin. The American Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he wrote, He that has become pure in heart, he hates sin. He has an antipathy against it. He doesn't love to be near it. If he sees any of it hanging about him, he abhors it himself for it he seems filthy to himself he is a burden unto himself he abhors the very sight of it and shuns the appearance of it now you are saved you are set apart by the grace of god in in christ your salvation is secure it is true and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus romans 8 we understand this and because of the security of your salvation how much more should you in gratitude be Experiencing the conviction toward holiness, to be holy as God is holy. Not because you're afraid of losing your salvation, that's not possible, but it's an act of gratitude. I want to be like the one who has saved me. When was the last time you simultaneously sensed the weight and the burden, as Edwards said, of the sin which hangs about you and the tremendous gratitude to God for saving you from the consequences of your own unholiness. Those two go together. They go together. You weep for your sin, and yet you rejoice for your salvation. You weep for your disobedience, yet you rejoice for the fact that the obedience of Christ has been exchanged for your disobedience. We easily skip to the gratitude part. I think sometimes we do our best to avoid the weighty part of conviction, of asking questions like, Was that the holiest thing I could say? Is my attitude holy and upright? In my heart, am I destroyed by my own sinfulness while simultaneously gladdened by God's salvation in my soul? Those are weighty questions to ask. Listen, the failure to sense conviction toward holiness will cause greater problems for you down the road than you can possibly imagine. The Lord is fully committed to your Christ-likeness and therefore He will do whatever it takes to keep you on that track, including discipline and correction and great and tremendous pain, even up to and including Christians' death. To simply say, you are done on this earth, you will not conform to the image of Christ, I'm going to make you now. By the way, God had commanded that Israel wipe out the Midianites and they didn't. Some got away. Fast forward about 200 years to the time of the Judges. Judges 6 verse 1, you don't have to turn there, listen to this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian 
seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Did you get this? The people of God are now hiding in caves from the Midianites. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Do you see why God told them to wipe them out? He is all wise and he knows what he's doing. The first type of conviction, conviction toward holiness. There's a second type of conviction which grows us spiritually into more mature and Christ-like believers in the Lord Jesus. Conviction toward selflessness. Conviction toward selflessness. Now Israel is camped on the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River. Preparations are being made for conquest and you recall that they've already captured some cities And towns on the east side, they've been in four major battles so far, and now they have something to show for it. And some of them say, I think we've gone far enough. I think we're home. Verse 32, chapter 32, rather, verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, these are two of the tribes of Israel, had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sebum, Nebo, and beyond, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. All the way in verse 33, we find out that the half-tribe of Manasseh, it's called a half-tribe because the son of Joseph, son of Jacob, Manasseh, and then there's also Ephraim. Joseph was the full tribe. Manasseh, Ephraim, considered half-tribes. But Manasseh was included in this bunch who wanted to stay in the land right where they were. And once again, Moses must respond to the people of God not going far enough. In chapter 31, they hadn't gone far enough in completely devoting Midian to destruction as a sacrifice to the Lord. And now several tribes decided they were home. And put it this way, 12 tribes of Israel, not including the Levites, a fourth of them, 25% of them have said, we're done. We're we're home. And Moses lays into them. Verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, 
and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. Nothing like a little perspective to humble the heart. He basically said, if you do this, the entire nation will go back to the wilderness another 40 years. Once again, the people responded in humility and in conviction, and they made a very fair offer. Verse 16, Then they came near to him and said, We will build our sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. In other words, we'll get set up here, but then we'll go fight for our brothers, and then we'll come home. Moses agrees to this. He says that if the tribes who will live up to their end of that deal. If they would be faithful to their brothers, then they would indeed inherit the land they were now in. And they in turn commit to help their brothers. Verse 31, And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. They've been selfish. One of the ways our flesh very subtly comes against us is when we're incited to selfishness. And thus, we need the conviction of selflessness. We need that conviction. Selfishness has some very subtle symptoms. They're hard to see. You have a growing inability to empathize with others, or worse, not caring to try to do so. That's selfish. Selfishness has the symptom of being obsessed with how you feel. Being obsessed with how you feel and thinking perhaps everyone else around you should be obsessed with how you feel. And whatever emotional roller coaster you're on, everyone around you gets to ride that ride with you. It could also be an unwillingness to bend for others, an unwillingness to compromise, an unwillingness to do that which is not your favorite thing because it will be beneficial to others. It's very subtle. We fight selfishness in the American church continually. We often feel that we're shoppers to be pleased rather than sheep to be shepherded. Sometimes we feel that we're superiors in Christ rather than slaves of Christ. Think on the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Think on the church of Jerusalem. Acts 8 verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Think on the church at Smyrna. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Think on the apostle Paul. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my, my anxiety for all the churches. And we say, I'm leaving the church because the chairs are uncomfortable. Selfishness hurts the work of the ministry. It hurts it. Paul and Barnabas were out on their important missionary journey and Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, along with them on the next leg of their journey as he had accompanied them for much of the first part. But Paul said no. He said no. Acts 15, beginning in verse 38, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In other words, Mark deserted them once and Paul said, you're out. I can't trust you. Now, the bigger picture is we know that they reconciled and that John Mark um, came around because we have a gospel according to Mark. And we praise the Lord for that. But at some level, John Mark had demonstrated selfishness. He hadn't stayed true to the mission. And Paul cut that line. He said, I can't take with me guys I can't trust who aren't fully committed. We may fight selfishness in our families. If a family has even just one family member who has to have things his or her way all the time, it causes misery, it causes difficulty, and ultimately cripples that family into being something less than honoring to God and to one another. A husband and a father who lives only for his own recreation, for his own enjoyment of life, instead of sacrificing for his family and investing in them. A wife and a mother who's never happy, always needing everyone else to pay attention to her instead of happily and quietly serving her husband and her children. Or the child who's become the center of the family and everything revolves around him and parents who can't say that all-important righteous word, no. But there is a better way. There's a better way. Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. We read this this morning and it's worth rereading. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul told Philemon, a leader in the church at Colossae, that he was certain that Philemon would obey his wishes concerning the runaway slave Onesimus, whom Paul was sending back to Philemon. Philemon 21 Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. That's selflessness. Just as a side note of warning and concern, selfishness will eventually have consequences. It will catch up to you. You cannot run ahead of that train forever. It will run over you. Look what Moses told the tribes of Gad and Reuben. Numbers 32, verse 23 
But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You want to live a life of selfishness? You will end your life alone. I've been to funerals with a dozen people because of a life of selfishness. Selfishness will be found out. It will catch up. So how much better to pursue selflessness, to have that conviction towards selflessness? And I have observed this even in the church of Jesus Christ that that can be seared. That part of your conscience can quit working where you don't realize that everything you do, everything you think, everything you're saying is continually about yourself. Instead of those precious believers that are thinking of others continually and very, very sensitive when they become selfish. Now, I told you that these two incidents were very similar in some ways, almost parallel. What is it that brought about the conviction toward holiness and the conviction toward selflessness? What brought these about? There's three factors that brought these about. And I'm going to add three more from the New Testament. Here's what brought these about. First of all, the correction of leadership. The correction of leadership. Look with me back at chapter 31, verse 15. Chapter 31, verse 15. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Now back in chapter 32, verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? These are challenging questions. These are direct questions. These are sharp questions. That's why when preaching, we ask questions. It is for the purpose of of giving you the opportunity to test your own heart, to answer that question for yourself. Part of the function of the shepherds of God's people is to correct. In fact, preaching is the context of Paul's reminder to Timothy, very very common reminder here that we know well, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The context is preaching. Not just online preaching, not distance preaching, not distant communication, but preaching in the context of the gathered body of Christ. I'm looking at you in the eye now and you know it. You know it. You know what phrase I hear more than any as a pastor? Were you preaching to me? My answer is always the same. I don't know, was I? That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, yep. (laughs) Oh, this is so... Needful, isn't it? Listen, the pastoral ministry is all but lost. It's God-appointed place of authority. It really has. Paul told Titus, though, in Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There is a pastoral authority that is to be exerted. This is so good for us. It's so good for our souls. There's a second factor that brought about conviction, and that is the character of God. The character of God. Chapter 31, the holiness of God is the reminder of the day. Chapter 32, the righteousness of God is the reminder of the day. Chapter 32, verse 14. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. God is righteous and they were not being righteous. Let me put it to you this way. The less you think about God's character, the less you are convicted to have a soft heart. The less you are convicted to have a humility of spirit, a deep yearning to truly be pleasing to the Lord. This is why the continual pursuit of God, of knowing Him, 
This is one of the major factors in bringing about an ease of conviction. You should be easily convicted. It's a joy to me to see many believers who are easily and thankfully convicted of sin. I, I love that. Some of my favorite counseling sessions are the ones in which the conviction of sin and the determination to make a course correction is simply described to me. Pastor Steve, I just have been reading the word this week and I feel like I need to do this, 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 and this. And I'm just crushed in my own sin. And here's what I'm going to do differently. What do you think? I say, I agree. Let's pray. That's easy. That's wonderful to see that. There's a third factor here in these two texts, these two chapters that brought about conviction. We'll call this factor the chronicles of the past. The chronicles of the past. Look with me at thirty-one, chapter 31, verse 16. Moses gives the reminder, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of the Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Look with me now in chapter 32, verse 8. Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel. And you recall those were the 12 spies who went and came back. And 10 of them said, we're too scared. You should be scared too. Your past recalcitrance, your past consequences for stubbornness or the refusal to humbly submit to the Lord. This should remain. These should remain before you. These are your counselors. These are your teachers. Scars are good for you. Not for a continued guilt for sin that's already been forgiven, but as a monument, as a road sign that says, remember what happened last time you went down this road? Remember what happened last time you failed to have conviction? So we have the correction of leadership, the character of God, the chronicles of the past. I want to add three more from the New Testament. As new covenant believers in Christ, a fourth factor that bring about, brings about conviction, the counsel of the Holy Spirit. The counsel of the Holy Spirit. Galatians five sixteen says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And how does the Spirit of God work in you? By bringing to your remembrance, to your heart, the word of God. Thus, the fifth factor we'll call the consumption of Scripture. The consumption of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Peter tells us, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's not that you're growing your own salvation from sin, but it's that you're, you're reaching the stature of what it means to be saved. That you're acting like your new nature. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible, I find any excuse to bring it up anytime I can. I cherish the story of Paul with the believers in Troas in Acts 20. Paul is leaving the next day. He got together with them and he began preaching. They had dinner. He continued preaching. He preached until midnight. They had a small interruption for young Eutychus to fall asleep, fall out of the window, die, be resurrected by Paul, and for Paul to have a midnight snack. But then he got back to preaching and he preached to them until dawn. That is hunger for the consumption of the truth of God's word. I have little sympathy for the Christian who says, my life is just not what I wish it was and I'm in church twice a month. 
Look, we try on Sundays on the Lord's Day at Grace Bible Church, we want this to be a Bible conference day. We want you to be fed to overflowing because you need to consume the Word of God. I have a very simple question for you. This is one you have to answer in your own heart. When? When will your life be characterized and prioritized around the consumption of the Bible, around the preaching of God's Word, around reading the results of the study of men of God? We call these books. When will that happen? What are you waiting for? What is the all-important thing that must happen before the guzzling and the gobbling and the consuming and the devouring of the Word of God becomes your lifestyle, becomes your byword, becomes what you are about? Because without that, conviction will wane and will suffer. And how often in my office, is right over here to my left, People say, my, my walk with the Lord just isn't what it used to be. I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of sin. I'm in the midst of difficulties. And I always ask the same question. How much are you in the Word? I already know the answer. I already know the answer. One more factor that leads to conviction, the crucifixion of self. The crucifixion of self. This is a hard one because we don't want to do this. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can I put it this way? If you are dead, you don't have any rights. And if you're dead, you can't be filled with pride. If you're dead, you can't be easily offended. If you're dead, being dragged along behind whatever God's will is quite easy. You just go limp and go there. The dead do not, are not offended easily. Crucifixion of self. So the correction of leadership, the character of God, the chronicles of the past, the counsel, counsel of the Holy Spirit, the consumption of Scripture, and the crucifying of self. Now the conviction toward holiness and the conviction toward selflessness become part of you. And it becomes normal, becomes stable, becomes standard, it becomes typical. And it will never be said of you, you know, you remind me of Diotrephes. Let that never be said of you, let that never be said of me. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these two chapters that are so convicting for us. Lord, in the real sense, I didn't even want to preach these chapters because I know I'm preaching to myself. And yet they... Cleanse our soul with a reminder to be sensitive to the Spirit of God, sensitive to the Word of God. To examine our conduct, to be holy in all that we do, all that we say. To examine ourselves, to be selfless. To die to self more and more in our families, in our workplaces, and certainly in the Church of Jesus Christ a church filled with unholy, selfish people is in many ways not a church at all. And yet, a church filled with holy and selfless people can turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the word of God, the songs of our faith which have reached, reached into the depths of our souls and reminded us of the glories of Christ. May this be the last Lord's Day we have together on this earth. May you come for us between now and next Sunday. But should you tarry, help us to be faithful.
Help us, Lord, to be a church that is characterized by holiness and selflessness. And we pray for Christ's glory and for his sake. Amen.